0: This is Case Closed, Crime Stories from the Golden Age of Radio. This is Case Closed, your weekly hour of old-time radio crime, which you can find every Wednesday at relicradio.com. Our first story this week comes from The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. We'll hear The Big Book, his story from September 29th, 1950. After that it's Sherlock Holmes and The Case of the Avenging Blade. That story was originally heard February 1st, 1948.
1: Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. Those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn.
0: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in the Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's story, The Big Book.
2: Oh, Marlowe, it winds it up. Boys got him in the wagon without any trouble, thanks to you. Oh, well, you don't have your car here, do you, Phil?
1: No, Lieutenant, and I haven't had lunch either. Hmm? Maybe the police department feels obligated on both counts, huh? Maybe. <laughs>
2: get in, Phil. Mooney, some good restaurant before headquarters, huh? Okay, Lieutenant. How are you, Mr. Marlowe? Hungry, Mooney. <laughs> okay, Mr. Marlowe. I know a good spaghetti place, Louie. Unit 18A,
1: a dead body at number 11 West Main Street. Reported a suicide. Investigate. You'll No, that's a specific a, Unit
2: eighteen A, dead
3: oh. body
2: at number eleven West Main Street. I at mean, eleven West Main, the corner. Isn't it, Moley? That's right, Lieutenant. Might save us a trip back here later, huh? Yeah. Marlowe, lunch will be a little late. Let's go, Mooney.
1: At number eleven West Main Street, a Skid Row rooming house. A middle-aged woman who had been the ground-floor rear apartment was now dead of a bullet that had passed directly through her heart. A shabby, cramped room was packed tight with a dozen different stale smells and the naked light bulb dangled from a cracked plaster ceiling. The dead woman lay in the middle of the floor. She looked about 45, had gray-black hair, and wore a cheap cotton dress under a faded moth-eaten man sweater. Up to there, she belonged to the backdrop. But beyond that, Someplace in the deeply etched beauty of her face, the studied neatness of her hairdo, there was something vague and disturbing that made the whole picture slightly lopsided, like a a cheerful tie on an undertaker. Ten minutes later, when I was out in the hall, listening to Mooney run down the routine facts for Lieutenant Matthews, that something was still with me, bothering me, the way a a half-remembered dream does when you're shaving the next morning
2: five years now. Came from the east, and according to the landlord, has no close friends or relatives in the city. Also, the bullet was fired at Point Blank Range. Uh-huh. Anything on the gun that was next to her? Uh, not yet, Lieutenant. It was her fingerprints only. Looks like it's strictly pawn shop stuff. Serial numbers filed off, cheap make, etc. Yeah, yeah. Deputy coroner says she died about 10 or 10.30 this morning. Yeah. Long about that same time, the landlord says he saw a flashy black car parked in the alley outside, where people never parked. Spiffy hmm. convertible. Was gone after he heard the shot, he thinks.
1: Did you get the license number, Mooney?
2: Uh, no, Mr. Marlowe, you got nothing. Uh, all we have on it so far is a fresh tire tread in the mud. to 750 75015. Pretty good shape. Uh huh. And that is it, huh? Just about. Landlord thinks that the deceased was an actress way back from a little remarks she made. That's mm. about all. I still got one neighbor to check, though. Okay, Mooney, let me know. Right. Now, uh, Marlowe looks like I have to stand you up on that lunch date. Sorry.
1: I, uh, I'm not so hungry anymore. I'll see you around, Matthew. On the way out, I told myself three things. One aside from the fact that we belonged to the same fraternity laughingly called mankind. Jane Temple was nothing to me. Two, a lot of beautiful girls turned out to be beautiful women, and three, if the black convertible meant anything at all, the police would figure it out by themselves. They came well equipped for the job. Well, by the time I was out on the street in the sharp autumn air had chopped away the stale smells of the dead woman's apartment, I was beginning to forget the name Jane Temple entirely. I might have kept going that way if he hadn't appeared just then. Psst. Hey, hey, huh? mister, mister. Over here, quick. Mister, you, you're not a
4: policeman. You, you're a reporter for the newspaper, no?
1: What makes you say that?
4: Well, I see you go in there with the police, the plainclothes detective man. Nobody salute you. The ones in uniform, I mean. So maybe you reporter, eh? Maybe why? Well, I can't tell you here. Come to my shop in fifteen minutes. I don't want people to see us together now. Come to the shoemaker place across the street and down at the stairs. Andrew Nodell.
1: Yeah, but why, Mr. Nodella? What do you want a reporter for? What's it about? Uh, the fine, fine lady who just
4: to die, Mrs. Jane Pengue. Goodbye, mister. Mm-hmm. Look, my friend, it cost me one buck fifty for the letter alone. How can I give it to you for now? Now, look, you have been Okay, si- okay, okay. Andrew Nodella changes his mind. He won't argue for, for, with a customer. Here, one dollar twenty five is just like you want in my cash. Yeah, it's
5: more like it. I wasn't born just the other day. I can tell, value. Sure,
4: sure, sure. My mistake, Commissioner. Excuse me, please. Okay. Please. Uh, Kill Ladrone, the cheese. I yeah. only gave in to get rid of him, you see. Now, I'll put the out to launch a sign on and lock up the door so we won't be disturbed. The police and nobody. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, m- Mr. Marlowe, we go in the back room this way. Please. Now, wait a minute, wait
1: a minute. Uh, Before we go any place, Nodella, one question. Why are you so worried about the police?
4: Because down in this neighborhood, Mr. Marlowe. Every time I do a good thing and I call the police when it's right, I get in some kind of trouble. These people, my customers, they don't, they don't like... You should be... A, stool pigeon? Ah, a stool pigeon. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, Mr. Nodella. Now about Jane Temple. Uh, uh, wonderful
4: woman, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, come in the back room. Eh? All Ah, right. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, fine. I call to the lady. I know. I was, uh, I was not always a shoemaker... You know, in the old country, I was a student. And before that, I was an
1: artist. I wouldn't doubt it. You and Jane Temple were really good friends, is that it? Ah, see,
4: see good friends. That's why I'm in a position to say I don't think she killed herself. She was not the kind of a lady, Mr. Marlowe. She was not moody. She liked to be alone with her memories, but that's all. Look, come here at the table, Mr. Marlowe. Look at this. That was hers.
1: Scrapbook, huh?
4: Yeah. She left it with me. The leather on the front was worn. I was repairing it for her. She trusted only me with it. But open it up, Mr. Muller. I say no more. You just look for yourself.
1: It was the usual setup. Between the big covers of a big book, a little life story in tattered yellow clippings and faded photographs. Twenty-five years ago, Jane Temple had been exquisite. The fragile, haunting kind of beauty that never goes out of style. The kind of, of universal beauty that makes style. The book itself came in two parts. The first told in rave reviews and letters from select admirers. As the rocket-fast rise of Jane Temple, who, as one critic put it, was inspirational beauty in the inspired actress. Both. Yet on that level, the first part ended abruptly in 1928. With no explanation. The second part was another success story, but it ran right up to the present. The career of one Jerome Lockie. From obscure London stagehand to top Hollywood theatrical agent. (laughs) A healthy, giant step. But no place did I see anything to connect the two. Odella must have read my mind.
4: You wonder, eh, Mr. Marlowe, what one got to do with the other. Yeah. Do you know? No. Now, maybe this can help you find out. It's it's another clipping that was not pasted in the book.
1: Where'd it come from?
4: Inside the back cover. I was only to repair the front, Mr. Marlowe. But as a surprise for Miss Temple, I, I went ahead to do it all. See? I found this clipping hidden in the lining of the back cover. It tells of a man named John Gordon being sent to jail in London, England in 1928 for embezzlement of a theater's money.
1: There's a picture of him, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, so I... Hey, this John Gordon Jerome
4: Malachy, has... see? Yeah. The big agent man, Mr. Marlowe. But Ma, there's still one more thing. Last night, I surprised somebody, a thief, in this shop. And when I scared him away, he was looking at this book, but nothing else was a touch. You didn't tell anybody about it? No, 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 no. I was going to tell Miss Temple, but, well, Mr. Marlowe, everything I say to you, everything I show you here, am I crazy or does it mean only one thing? Jerome Malaki killed the wonderful Miss Temple to keep a secret.
1: Well, it's possible. But also, Nodella Miss Temple may not be so wonderful at that. You know, people don't kill to keep secrets. They kill to keep secrets from getting out. That's called blackmail. No, Mr. Marlowe, not to Miss Temple. I don't believe it.
4: I don't believe that you do either. I don't want to. Well, I'll see what I can find out. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you, you tell me before you tell your paper.
1: Mr. Nodella, I don't have a paper. Just curiosity. I'm a private detective, not a reporter. And uh, the initial mistake was yours, not mine. So don't get mad about it.
4: What? A private detective? Mr. Marlowe, who you working for?
1: Right now, Mr. Nodella? I'd say the late Jane Temple. Goodbye. The Jerome Lockie agency on the Sunset Strip was big, brassy, and busy and sported a blonde receptionist to match. After I gave her my card and we exchanged frosty smiles, she waved me into a seat. I tried it for 15 minutes and then I began to get itchy. But compared to the dapper gray at the temple's gentleman sitting next to me, that was a mild reaction. He was one of those heavy-handed character actors you remember by face, never by name.
6: Mr. Jerome Larkey certainly has an exaggerated impression of his own Been importance. Been
1: here a while, huh? Hmm?
6: Quite a while, sir. There's much too long a while. Young lady.
7: Please tell Mr. Larkey that Elliot Monroe could wait no longer. I'll see him at his home this evening. I have several studio calls to make this afternoon. Good day.
3: Good day, Mr. Monroe. Ah, studio calls. Yes? Mr. Monroe couldn't wait, Mr. Larky. He said he'd see you at your home tonight, sir.
7: My tough luck. Anyone else, Madge?
3: only that New York call, sir. I'm still trying to get it. I'll put it right through the moment it comes in.
7: Uh,
3: <coughs> oh, <coughs> yes. Uh, uh, Mr. Philip Marlowe, a private investigator.
7: A private investigator? Uh, is it important?
1: I think so, Mr. Larky. It's as important as Jane Temple. Uh,
7: Jane? What about Jane Temple?
1: She's dead, Mr. Larky. <laughs> A bullet through her heart. No.
3: Uh, Madge. Yes, sir? uh,
7: Bring Mr. Marlowe right
3: in. Yes, sir. Right his way, Mr. Marlowe.
1: Thank you.
7: Well, Marlowe, why are you here? I mean, uh, how did you know I had anything to do with Jane Temple?
1: I didn't. But since she was an actress once and you're about the biggest agent in Hollywood, I thought I'd start with you.
7: Start what, Mr. Marlowe?
1: Start finding out why she committed suicide, Mr. Lockie. Tell me, do you own a black convertible?
7: Yes, uh,
1: one of those step-down Hudsons. Tire size, do you happen to know it?
7: Yes, yes, uh, seven fifty-fifteen. Why? What's all that got to do with Jane Temple's suicide?
1: Quite a bit. Might even change it to murder. Jane Temple murdered? By whom? Someone who'd profit, Mr. Lockie. Any idea who that could be? Not the slightest. Okay, thanks for your trouble. And uh good afternoon.
7: Uh, wait... Hold it, Mr. Marlowe. Uh Huh? I, uh, I'd like to talk with you some more.
1: But not here. You name the spot, Mr. Larkey.
7: All right. My house tonight, 9 o'clock.
1: 9 o'clock. I'll be there.
0: In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first... Our armed forces are mighty busy these days. They're conducting the United Nations police action in Korea. They're patrolling the occupied countries. They're standing ready for national defense. And at the same time, they're doing important scientific research. With so many varied duties, the armed forces need more men. Men with brains and ability who can be trained as highly efficient specialists. Men who want to be the leaders of tomorrow. Inquire at your nearest recruiting office about the opportunities open to you... ...in America's armed forces, the world's greatest power for peace. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe... ...and tonight's story, The
1: Big Book. When I walked out of Jerome Locke's sleek private office... I was satisfied that in spite of the efficient air conditioner, the atmosphere in there would stay charged. With enough high voltage implications so that sooner or later he'd have to make another move. Outside it was dark. I drove back downtown and finally located Lieutenant Matthews at a lunch counter, wrapping up the short end of a quick blue plate special. My story didn't affect his appetite a bit.
2: Have a piece of pie, Marlo. The cherry is great. Matthews, I've been trying to tell you that I... I've been listening, Phil, to all of it. All of it, from that crackpot shoemaker to a leather-bound scrapbook Right on up to a weird-looking Jerome Locke's kiss. Now, what do you want me to do, get an ulcer?
1: Matthews, maybe Jane Temple didn't kill herself. Maybe she was murdered. Go on. Now, look, there was an old clipping and some pictures in that scrapbook that identified yeah. our Jerome Locke as one John Gordon, who did time a few years ago for embezzlement, mm-hmm. which, if revealed, would ruin the great Jerome Locke of today. Now, look, it looks like... Oh, nuts. What's the matter?
2: What's the matter? Look, Marlowe, I haven't been to bed for 24 hours. I'm dog-tired. I thought I finally got a break. A clean-cut case of obvious suicide. A nice old doll, disillusioned, broke, did herself in. Too bad, yeah, but just that simple. So what happens? You run into some jerk of a shoemaker with an imagination, and now it's all mixed up with ex-cons, blackmails, and murder.
1: It's not my fault. I didn't do it, you know. I'm sorry, Phil. All right. A little fed up, I guess.
2: Oh, nothing that a week or so of hearing wind and pine trees wouldn't cure. So you went out to see Lockie, huh? Uh Uh-huh. Where'd you leave it?
1: Hanging in midair. Uh, Made a date with him for late at night at his house. You think he did it? Who knows? I saved my Sunday punch, his real name being Gordon, that is. Maybe when I spring that, it'll jar something loose, huh? Maybe.
2: Oh, by the way, did you meet Mrs. Lockey?
1: Not yet. Why? Nothing in particular.
2: Good-looking blonde I saw once in the Beverly Hills station. Some beef about a collision. She impressed me as being a pretty tough fighter in the clinches, that's all. Just a thought.
1: Yeah, finish your pie, Matthews.
2: Yeah. You want to follow this through on your own, Phil?
1: Yeah, if you don't mind. You see, I've gone this far, and well there was something about Jane Temple that I don't know. It showed. Even down there in that dump.
2: Yeah. That's what I mean, Phil. I gotta get out under the pine trees for a spell, so. Keep me posted, huh? <laughs>
1: I drove out to Beverly Hills again and found the Jerome Larkey place. It was a close-to-the-ground model that at first glance looked like a cozy little cottage. Second glance, however, showed the other two wings, 15 or 20 ultra-modern rooms that rambled over two acres of gently rolling real estate. The door was answered by a close-cropped blonde and tailored black, who already today had the tapered, taut look of tomorrow. Yes? I'm Philip Marlowe. Is Mr. Larkey here?
3: Oh. Oh, yes. Come in, Mr. Marlowe. I'm Vivian, Jerry's wife. Oh? Jerry's expecting you. He'll be right out. He asked me to look after you for a few minutes. Do you mind?
1: On the contrary.
3: (laughs) I was in the middle of a whiskey and water, Johnny Walker. Like one?
1: Thanks. Too bad about Jerry's old friend, Jane Temple, huh?
3: Yes. Yes, it was a perfectly horrible thing. Jerry's very upset about it, you know. It uh, must be awful to fall so far.
1: Yeah. The top is awful high. Did you know her?
3: Only by reputation. What do you suppose happens to a person like that? I mean, you'd you'd think they'd try to climb back out of the squalor.
1: Yeah, you'd think so. Like uh, Jerry did.
3: That's right.
1: He deserves a lot of credit. Things must have been tough after he got out.
3: Yes. Yes. Yes, they were. Why, when he got out of of the production end of show business, he was flat broke. He lost a fortune that way. He's told me about it, how he had to start all over again from the bottom.
1: So I understand.
3: Uh, here's your drink, Mr. Marlowe.
1: Oh, thanks, Vivian. Thanks a lot.
3: You know, Mr. Marlowe, it really is a long, hard struggle to make it up from the bottom, especially a second time. The third time, it—it it might be impossible, don't you think?
1: Yeah. When you're up there, the fight's even rougher, isn't it?
3: Yes. Yes, it is.
1: Sometimes a prison would. Oh, it looks like you have another visitor. What? Coming up the walk outside.
3: Oh, oh, that's Elliot Monroe. He's always popping in here at odd times, usually to borrow something. <laughs> He may want anything from a clean shirt to a cup of vinegar. We never know.
1: Well, this time he wants to see your husband. I ran into him at the office this afternoon and heard him say so. Oh, really? Yeah, so I'll make my business with Jerry as short and as to the point as possible.
3: But it's, it's very considerate of you, Mr. Marto. Excuse me.
1: I heard Mrs. Vivian Lockie receive the load of ham at the front door, and a second later I heard my name called from the hall behind me. It was Jerome all smiles, doing his suave and determined best to bury the end of the world look he'd acquired in his office. But it peeked out around his eyes and at the twitching corner of his mouth. As he led me into the library and pointed me into a deep leather chair, I decided to let him lead off. I also decided to bait a trap and set it out.
7: Now, how about a drink, Marlowe?
1: I have one, thanks. Mrs. Lockie anticipated you.
7: Anticipated? Oh, yes, of course. Well, let's see. Where did we leave off this afternoon?
1: Oh, we talked about a lot of things, like tire sizes, suicide.
7: Mm, Oh, yes, yes. Now let me get something straight, Mr. Marlowe. You seem to believe that there's a little more to poor Jane Temple's death than a simple suicide.
1: Considerably more, Mr. Lockie. Yes.
7: And you've come to me with this problem.
1: Why? Because you may be able to fill in some blanks. Hmm? How? It's up to you. Let's say first that I think a prominent and wealthy man is connected, a man who's saddled with a messy past that he can't afford either to keep secret or have revealed. Now, just a minute, Marlowe.
7: I don't know what you're driving at with this double talk, but it sounds to me as if you're accusing Jane Temple of blackmail, and I don't believe it. She'd have starved to death first.
1: I'd like to agree, believe me. But unfortunately, I can still add. What do you mean? For instance, to what I said before, I had the name John Gordon. Go- uh, <clears throat> who uh, is John Gordon? I'm not quite sure. But I do know this. Somehow the key to who he is ties into a basement shoe shop in the 100 block on West Main Street. Does that mean anything to you?
7: No, why should it? Marlowe, why exactly did you come here? Please tell me.
1: I just did. Well, that's that. Chances are I'll see you again sometime. Good night, Mr. Lockhart. Marlowe, wait. Uh, listen. In my business, bad
7: publicity counts. And I've worked awfully hard to... I keep I know.
1: It. I went all through that, but Mrs. Lockie, don't worry about me. This time, I'm more than willing to let somebody else do the talking. When I walked out on Lockie for the second time, things still didn't add up right. Something was missing. In the hall, I passed Elliot Monroe, hanging onto a glass of scotch like it was a streetcar strap. And at the door, Mrs. Lockie ushered me out with a frigid, unsmiling nod. I drove slowly all the way to Main Street, and when I was parked and walking toward Nadella's shoe shop, I began to doubt that the trap I'd set was going to catch anything. Until a long black convertible turned the corner behind me. I ducked into a doorway and waited. It was Jerome Lockie's car, all right. He almost stopped in front of the shoe shop, but suddenly lurched ahead and disappeared around the corner. Away from what turned out to be a cop pounding the beat. I was convinced he'd be back, so when the cop passed me, I ran around to the rear of the shoe shop and down the stairs to a window where I could keep out of sight and still see anything that went on inside. I just settled down for a wait when it came.
6: Stand still, my fine fellow. Don't move or I'll kill you.
1: Mr. Elliot Monroe. What do you know about that? Looks like the wrong sucker rose to the bait. Or is this just coincidence?
6: It's no coincidence, my friend, believe me. While you were in talking to dear Jerry tonight, Vivian was called to the phone. That gave me a chance to listen outside the library door and overhear everything you said. That's why I am here, to protect my interests.
1: No wonder things didn't add. You're the missing link, typecast at that. Keep those right? hands up. Sure. Sure, I couldn't see Jane Temple as a blackmailer now. Jerome Lockie is a killer, but you're playing both parts. For you, that's a cinch. My, but our detective is clever now, isn't he? But just a little late. Did not you say? Yeah. No switches in a one-track mind. Yeah, it's my own fault. Have your fun, Monroe. But tell me one thing. How'd you worm your way into this setup? That was a well-kept secret.
6: <laughs> not to a man with an experienced eye for drama, my good fellow. It started very simply when I recognized Jane Temple on the street one afternoon and befriended her. Befriended her? Uh, yes. We reminisced about the good old days in the theater and finally <laughs> went through her scrapbook together. But there was one clipping that she tried desperately to hide in the binding. Oh, clumsy old
1: fool. So when she sent the book here to be repaired, it was you who broke in and found that clipping, huh? Yes,
6: yes, and read it and put it back before the stupid cobbler discovered me. But I had found the skeleton in the closet and knew that I could make it rattle long, loud, and lucratively.
1: Sure. Jane Temple would do the dirty work, put the bite on Lockie.
6: It would have been perfect, an ideal escape for both of us from the constant humiliation of poverty. There was nothing of woman left in her. All that remained of the great Jane Temples was dusty yesterday in a book bound in leather. Mr. Marlowe, are you afraid to die?
1: No more than most people? Oh,
6: oh, I'm glad you said that. I had to kill you anyway, but at least you understand. Um, uh, he who kills cuts off so many days of fearing death. Then is death a benefit.
3: It's the last benefit you'll ever play. <laughs>
8: <laughs> Poor
3: crazy clown. know all the answers now, don't you, Marlo? The whole story.
1: Yes, Vivian. All well, except how you showed up here when you did.
3: I, I had to. You, you see, I, I've always known about Jerry's past. He told me about it before we were married. I i knew that was why you came to see him tonight, and, and when I saw Elliot there listening at the library door, i I realized that he must have known too. When he left the house, I followed him.
1: Got here in time to save my life.
3: To be honest, Marlo, that was incidental. I. I got here in time to save my life. I hope.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, just the same, I'm going to return the favor when the police get here.
3: You, you, you mean you.
1: I mean, there are a lot of things that belong in a dead woman's leather bound book of memories. No place else. I'm going to do my best to help you and Jerry keep them there. Oh. Thanks, Mister. Well, that's the way it worked out. One policeman named Matthews got the whole story, but only half of what he found out was entered in the police records. And only as much of that as was necessary ever got into the papers. Two days later, when Jane Temple's funeral was held, it didn't even make the back page. (laughs) After all, what's news about one Italian cobbler, one private detective... One hard-boiled agent standing bareheaded before a fresh grave. Even though the cobbler had worked all night, finding a big book in the finest of Morocco leather. Even though the agent with blinking, moist eyes closed that book for the last time. And the private detective laid it in the coffin to be buried with her. Yeah. What's news about that?
0: Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Jack Crucian, Bud Widom, Jay Novello, Lynn Allen, John Daner, and Ted Von Elts. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
5: the makers of clipper craft clothes for men, and 1036 leading retail stores from coast to coast, present the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Our stories are based upon the character of Sherlock Holmes, created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes is played by John Stanley. Dr. Watson by Alfred Shirley. And the dramatizations are by Edith Miser. Tonight there's frost on the windows of Dr. Watson's familiar study, and an overcast sky threatens another fall of snow. But as we sit snug and warm in front of a glowing fire, our thoughts turn to Sherlock Holmes and his immortal exploits. Well, which one are we to have tonight, Dr. Watson?
9: Tonight, Mr. Harris, I think I'll tell you... The Case of the Avenging Blade, one of the most touch-and-go, not to say hair-raising adventures it was ever my privilege to share with the Sage of Baker Street.
5: Meaning Mr. Sherlock Holmes.
9: I was certainly not referring to Mrs. Hudson. (laughs) Yes, when I think how close that sword came to decapitating the person we (laughs) both... there I go, anticipating again... But before I become further involved in the attempted at murder which occurred at the base of the equestrian statue of Charles I, suppose you stop me long enough to say a few well-chosen words on another important subject.
10: I'll you? do
5: my, my very best, Dr. Watson. You may have noticed that Clippercraft clothes are never on sale at reduced prices. There's a reason for this. It's that Clippercraft clothes are so low priced in the first place, for such remarkable quality, that sales just aren't necessary. What makes these amazing values possible? Right in your own local independent store, the store you can trust. Well, it's the famous Clipper Craft Plan. The plan that concentrates the buying power of 1036 great stores across the country. Creating year-round economies in manufacturing and distribution costs. You're the gainer through the efficient Clipper Craft Plan. That's why you pay only $40 and $45 for a Clipper Craft suit. Only $40 for a top coat or overcoat. And only $26.50 for sport jackets. That's why your eyes will pop with amazement when you see the fine tailoring and the rich, long-wearing fabrics at these low prices. Yes, compare clipper craft with clothes selling for many dollars more. And now to return to the avenging blade, the attempted murder and the equestrian statue, Dr. Watson.
9: Yes, yes, the famous statue of Charles I stands in Charing Cross, which, as you know, is often called the centre of London.
5: Charing Cross, isn't that the open space to the south of Trafalgar Square, Dr. Watson?
9: Correct, Mr. Harris. But uh, to begin at the beginning, it is one of those clear, rare days in late January which now and then surprise the city of London. The sky was a brilliant blue, and the light, powdery fall of snow reflected the dazzling sunlight outside. Holmes was lounging on the sofa in a brilliant purple dressing gown, his pipe rack within his reach, ashes scattered on the floor, and a couple of morning papers littering the room in all directions. My dear Holmes, no
10: one could accuse you of being a tidy man, only in my head, Watson. My brain houses what is probably the most accurate and complete collection of information in all of England, if not in the entire world. And it's all in meticulous and precise order. Conceit. Not at all, Watson, merely accuracy. But of what use are my unequal mental abilities? For months there's been no crime worthy of my attention, no case with any originality, any imagination. Oh, I
9: wouldn't say that. You found the Shah of Baghdad's missing emerald? You outwitted the band of nihilists who were threatening to blow up both houses of Parliament?
10: Hmm. Commonplace. Strictly routine investigations.
9: Oh, oh there's our front doorbell. Maybe it's a case.
10: Well, look out of the window, Watson, and see who's on the doorstep. That's a good chap.
9: Hmm. Pity you wouldn't bestir yourself now, then. Hmm. Tallish man. Dressed in highland regalia. Bonnet, kilts. Even wearing a Scottish dirk in his stocking. Hmm.
10: Rather drafty attire for a day like this. By the way, Watson, what day is it? Wednesday, of course. I mean, what day of the month?
9: Let me see. The uh, 30th, I believe. Well, at least according to the Times, it is.
10: Yes, I think we may grant that that is one subject on which the Times is fairly accurate. The 30th of January, of course, it's the anniversary of the beheading of Charles I. So that's why he's donned his kilts.
9: Mrs. Hudson is slow answering the door this morning. He's looking up here. Great Scott Holmes, it's the Duke of Buckinghurst.
10: I suspected as much. Well,
9: for heaven's sake, don't just sit there, Holmes. Help me to tidy, um, um, tidy up this clutter. Well, well, what sort of an impression do you expect to make sprawl there in the midst of all this
10: mess? My dear Watson, if his lordship has a case sufficiently important to warrant my attention, he'll be in no mood to notice trifles. If not, I'm not interested in his lordship. I'm not impressed by titles, Watson. They're so apt to due to chance of heredity, like red hair or a Roman nose. Uh, at least you might straighten your collar. Oh, come in.
9: Oh, Lord Buckinghurst, this is an honour. Uh, won't you sit down? Thank you. No, 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 not that chair. I, I think you'll find this one more comfortable. May I uh, relieve you of your bonnet? Uh, would you like a drop of brandy?
10: Watson, if you'll stop playing the palpitating hostess, Lord Buckinghurst might like to explain why he's called to consult me. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. It's all so fantastic, I...
11: I really don't know where to begin. If I had received this note at any other time, I'd have put it down to some poor demented half-wit. Persons in my position, Mr. Holmes, are unfortunately the recipients of a great many curious communications. Everything from
10: begging letters to blackmail. There's nothing fantastic about blackmail in your position, Lord Buckinghurst. Consequently, that is not the gist of the letter that brought you here. Good lord, no, but it's so
11: well, it's incredible. I, I hardly know how to describe it. Suppose you allow me to view the letter and judge for myself. That, that would be the most sensible procedure, I suppose.
10: Here you are, Mr. Holmes. Hmm. Paper, excellent quality. An educated script. Half English, half continental. Notice the final S's, Watson. Well. Well,
9: yes, but uh, to blaze it with the s's, what does it
10: say? You must pardon my friend's lack of restraint, Lord Buckinghurst. He will never realize that the writing paper and general appearance of the letter often give me more information about the sender than the contents of the message. I think you will agree that the contents of this letter
11: is of no small interest, Mr. Holmes. Mm, yes. Let's see.
10: To the late Duke of Buckinghurst. Hmm, interesting. Beware the blade of the Martyr King... Brief, but
9: uh, bewildering, eh, Holmes?
10: Not entirely. Lord Buckinghurst, you are, if I'm not mistaken, descended from the Duke of Buckinghurst, who was the favourite and boon companion of the ill-fated Charles I.
11: Correct, Mr. Holmes. As the eldest of my family, it thus evolves upon me to attend the memorial services which are held every 30th of January by the Royal Martyr Society and place a commemorative wreath on the pedestal of the statue.
10: Designed, if I'm not mistaken, by
11: Grinling Gibbons. Really? I had no idea. It's not so old as the statue,
10: I believe. The the, the pedestal, I mean. Quite. Tell me, Lord Buckinghurst, does this expression, the blade of the martyr king, have any particular significance to you? Why, yes and no. I
11: presume it refers to
10: the ancient superstition which
11: concerns the sword in the statue's hand. Which is? Uh, It seems that after the monarchy was restored, Charles II witnessed the execution of Thomas Harrison and the other regicides at Charing Cross... After the bloody event was over and his predecessor had been avenged, he made a proclamation to his followers.
12: the fate which befalls those who dare to turn against the crown, and so that you shall be reminded thereof, I hereby decree that on this spot shall be erected the statue of my martyred ancestor Charles, and to his hand shall be restored the sword which he carried at Marsden Moor and Naseby, and which was taken from him by the Scottish friends who foully betrayed him to his enemies. If any man dare henceforth to plot against the crown, let him beware that sort.
11: They say, Mr. Holmes, that when a traitor to the crown approaches the statue, the sword trembles and cries out for vengeance. How is that supposed to affect you, Lord Buckingham? Blessed if I know.
9: And yet, uh, someone obviously wants you to believe that if you attend this ceremony today, there'll be a catastrophe of some sort. I see, why not just say in words you have a bad cold and can't attend? As a medical man, I'd be more than glad to vouch for your indisposition.
11: Never. Whoever wrote that note doesn't know me very well. If he thinks he can scare me off by any such
10: hocus-pocus... Or he may know you very well. Tell me, Lord Buckinghurst, if you should be incapacitated on any of these occasions, who would be called on to place the wreath on the pedestal? My heir, of course.
9: You uh, have a son old enough to
11: represent you? No, Doctor Watson. I allude to my brother, James. I'm a bachelor and have no children. If anything should happen to me, my brother inherits the title... By any chance, Lord Buckinghurst, was your brother educated in France? Why, uh, yes, Mr. Holmes. He attended the Sorbonne. It was while he was studying in Paris that he met Claire, uh, his wife. Oh, I see what you're driving at. You think James may have written that note hoping to keep me at home so he would have the limelight in today's celebration? No, no. In the first place, my brother knows me too well for that. And in the second place, he's insufferably shy. He'd die of stage fright if he had to make a public appearance of any sort. But he will attend the ceremony. Oh,
10: yes, Mr. Holmes. The entire family will be there. Hmm. Should be a rather colourful affair. What do you say we accompany, Lord Buckinghurst, Watson? Oh, with pleasure.
9: And I promise you, sir, that whatever the danger is that threatens you, you'll be quite safe with Sherlock
11: Holmes along. Don't be fatuous, (laughs) Watson. Why do you think I dropped in this morning? But
10: uh, we'd better be getting along. The programme begins in half an hour. Oh, there's no hurry. We have plenty of time for a stirrup cup. Uh, scotch, I believe, would be appropriate to the occasion. I
11: Take my advice and drink it neat. Those breezes round Charing Cross are very brash this time of year.
10: Uh, Shall I get the bottle, Holmes? No, Watson. I'll do the honours. Uh, you might fetch my greatcoat, however. And your service revolver, that's a good chap.
8: right (laughs)
10: I don't know whether you know it, Lord Buckinghurst, but the statue of Charles I you are about to decorate has a rather ironic history. Really? It was cast in 1633 by Hubert Lasseur, a pupil of Giovanni Bologna, that had not yet been erected when the Civil War broke out and the first Charles was deposed and beheaded. It was subsequently sold by Parliament to a brazier by the name of Rivet. Rivet? Appropriate cognomen, eh, Holmes? Don't interrupt, Watson. Mr. Rivet was ordered to melt the statue down. Rank vandalism.
9: That's the trouble with people always wanting to destroy someone else's handiwork.
10: Calm yourself, Watson. Remember, the statue does stand in Charing Cross today. You mean old man Rivet uh, didn't destroy the silly thing? He announced that he'd done just that. And for years he made a tidy living out of selling fragments of metal as souvenirs to both cavaliers and roundheads. However, when the restoration came along, he sold the statue back to the government at a neat profit. It was subsequently erected on the spot where it now stands.
9: Oh, well, the old scoundrel. I say, uh, Lord Buckinghurst, you uh, look a bit glossy eyed uh, Don't you feel very
11: fit? as a fact, I do feel a bit squeamish. Must be the motion, the handsome cab. Never had it affect me this way before. Hold tight, we're nearly there. Just
10: turning into Trafalgar Square. Goodness for that.
9: Yes, look, Holmes, there's the statue up ahead. Quite a group of people gathered around. Lots of wearing kilts, and uh, there are bagpipers. (laughs) I do enjoy a highland air on the doodle sack, you
10: know. Oh, here we are, Lord Buckinghurst. Good. Get me out of here.
11: Uh, Be all right when I get my feet on terra firma.
13: you would never get here. They've been waiting nearly half an hour to begin the ceremonies. The Piper's have blown themselves practically out of breath, keeping the crowd entertained.
11: Sorry. Claire, my dear, may I present Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Gentlemen, this is my brother James and his wife. How do you do? How do you do? How do, you do? How do, you do?
13: This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the detective. Quite. Oh, how delightfully exciting. But, Robert, why a detective at a time like this?
10: Just a precaution.
13: Precaution? Precaution against what? Do not tell me there is something of which my brother-in-law, the
11: indomitable
12: Duke of Buckinghurst, is afraid. You do look a bit wonky, Robert. Is there anything wrong? A
11: matter of fact, I, I do feel a trifle under the weather. Oh, there, That Finn and Hattie I had for breakfast must have upset me. James, if I should have to retire suddenly... You take over when it comes time to place the wreath.
12: Oh, but I, 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 I couldn't. I, I, couldn't really. Why not? Uh, everyone would be looking at me.
10: I, I wouldn't know what to do. You don't do anything but carry the wreath escorted on either side by bagpipers playing a dirge. But, I... when you reach the statue, you place the wreath at its feet. And the pipers break into a Scottish battle song. It's all there is to it. Am I right, Lord Buckinghurst? That's all. Uh, James, no, I...
13: No, no, I can't let him do it. James is just out of his sick bed. He would have to remove his overcoat. And in those kilts in this icy wind, it would probably kill him.
9: The wind, Lady Clare? I say, look, the ceremony is nearly ready to begin.
11: The minister's about to read the benediction. Hey, you'll, you'll have to excuse me. Oh, Robert, you, you can't leave now. I have to, James. I, I, I think I'm going to be sick. I know I'm going to be sick. Holmes, what did you put in
9: that scotch you gave to Lord Buckinghurst?
10: the bagpipers with the wreath. Well, Lord Buckinghurst hasn't come back. Looks as though you'd have to carry on, Sir James. Oh,
12: dear, dear, I... I I do wish Robert would come back. I'm not at all good at this sort of thing. James,
13: I forbid you to do it. You can't take off your overcoat. Let someone else place the wreath. Let Mr. Holmes do it.
10: Uh, Thank you, madam, but it's an honor to which I'm afraid I cannot aspire. My ancestors were mostly roundheads, you know. I'm afraid King Charles wouldn't approve. I wouldn't want to come within striking distance of that famous
12: sword.
13: Oh, you are joking. Such an amusing man.
12: Am I? Oh, dear. Yes, they've noticed Robert is missing. They're bringing the wreath to me. Here, somebody hold my coat. No, James, no.
10: Sorry, madam. You know the expression, noblesse oblige. Carry on, Sir James.
12: Yes, I... I suppose I shall have to... Oh, dear, I... I wish I'd stayed in bed. James, you fool, you idiot.
10: Not a very impressive figure the cadet branch of the House of Buckinghurst, eh, Holmes? No man with knocked knees should wear kilts in public. Still, there are all kinds of courage, Watson. James,
9: he's reached the statue. He's... He's kneeling to place the wreath.
10: Watson, quick, hand me your revolver. Yes, but what will I don't like the angle of a statue's sword over his head. Oh, Holmes, have you taken leave of your senses? You'll know when they start to play the battle cry. Yes, the pipers are filling their lungs. Here they go.
8: All right, quick, fire. <laughs>
9: It's falling. Good Lord, Holmes. The sword, you hit it
10: in midair. You've broken it to bits. I've prevented it from impaling Sir James's body.
13: No, no, this is too much. It's killed him. He's lying on the ground. He's dead.
10: Calm yourself, madam. Your husband's only fainted. The sword missed him completely. Oh. Watson, will you go and revive Sir James? I'll attend to her ladyship here. Oh, very well, Holmes. And now, madam.
13: Now what, Mr. Holmes?
10: Why did you attempt to kill your husband's brother? You knew the vibrations of the wild Stuart battle cry on the bagpipes would dislodge the loosened sword in the statue's hand. You knew it would probably pierce the back of anyone kneeling below. You screamed to warn your husband before the sword fell.
13: Ah, <laughs> monsieur Holmes. You are almost as clever as people say you are. I will not bother to deny your accusations. Why should I? There is nothing you can prove. What have I to be afraid of?
10: The man you hired to loosen the sword in the statue's hand. With my sources of information, it shouldn't take me more than 24 hours to find him. With my powers of persuasion, it shouldn't take me more than 24 minutes to make him talk.
13: What is that expression they teach the children in this country, Mr. Holmes? Do not count the chickens until they are hatched. <laughs> <laughs>
5: It's no trick to make ordinary clothes at low prices, but it takes real manufacturing genius to produce really fine clothes that not only look far above, but are far above the modest price you pay for them. That's why we say try on a Clipper Craft tomorrow. It'll be hard to believe you're getting so very much for so very little. Such expert tailoring, smart styling, and superb long-wearing fabrics. This tremendous feat is accomplished through the renowned Clipper Craft Plan, which concentrates the buying power of ten hundred and thirty-six of the nation's finest stores from coast to coast. It brings you Clippercraft suits at only forty and forty-five dollars, top coats and overcoats at only forty dollars, and sport jackets at only twenty-six fifty. Yes, selling expensive clothes at inexpensive low prices at the nation's finest independent stores is the great big idea behind the Clippercraft plan. That's why men who know insist on Clipper Craft clothes. So be sure to visit the Clipper Craft store in your city. These leading stores in the metropolitan area are proud to add their names to
2: Clipper Craft in your suit, top coat, and overcoat. In Manhattan, John Wanamaker Men's Stores, Broadway at 8th and 67 Liberty Street. Saks 34th, Broadway at 34th. In Brooklyn, Abraham & Strauss. In Newark, New Jersey, Boulevard Men's Shop, Kresge, Newark. And in Jamaica... The B and B Clothes Shop, 16408 Jamaica Avenue.
5: And now back to Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson. We find them standing in the dim light of a street lamp, which marks the entrance to a crooked lane in Soho. Large flakes of falling snow intensify the expectant silence of the winter night.
9: How much longer do we have to wait out here in this confounded snow, Holmes? It's after midnight.
10: We shall wait here, Watson, until the Lady Claire arrives to pay a visit to the artisan who loosened the sword for her. You see, I was better than my promise. I tracked him down in less than 24 hours. What makes you so sure she'll come? She must, Watson. As long as Andre Bogard is alive, he's a threat to her safety. You think she'll try to finish him off? My dear Watson, a woman who's capable of attempting to murder her husband's brother so that he may inherit, is capable of anything. Holmes, uh, when did you first suspect the dixon? From the beginning. The letter of warning had to be written either by James or his wife. They were the only two who'd benefit by the death of Lord Buckinghurst. They were the only two who knew him well enough to know the effect the letter would be bound to have on him.
9: You mean he'd attend the ceremony come hell or high
10: water? Exactly. James didn't duck when the bagpipes burst into that violent squalling. Claire, however, screamed to warn him. Hence, she was the guilty party. QED. Here comes a four wheeler. Yes, it's turning down this alleyway. Down behind these barrels, Watson.
9: It stopped in front of Bogard's shop. I see she's. she's not getting out.
10: No. She's seen Andre's shadow on the blind. Yes, she's lowering the cab window. A woman's hand comes out of the window. It's holding a revolver. Very well, Lestrade, you have your proof. You may come down from the driver's seat and arrest the lady. Sherlock Holmes! Yes, better you use handcuffs on her, Lestrade. By the way, madam, this should teach you never, when on a secret mission, never take the first cab that presents itself. Never know who the coachman is. Oh, and uh, thank you so much for your display of marksmanship. I think you'll persuade Andre to tell us all we wish to know.
13: Oh, no, Mr. Holmes. I never miss. It is too late for Andre to tell anyone
10: anything. I'm so sorry to disillusion you, but it wasn't Andre's head your bullet hit. What? Merely a cleverly arranged silhouette of the man. I cut it out of cardboard myself only an hour ago. Oh. You see, Lady Claire, I have artistic blood in my veins. Or didn't you know? You...
13: I think you are the devil himself.
9: No, madam, only his second cousin.
10: <laughs> All right, Lestrade, you may take it away.
5: was a touch-and-go adventure, Dr. Watson, just as you promised. But tell me, what did Holmes put in the Duke of Buckinghurst scotch?
9: Something out of my medical kit, I'm afraid, something called epicac. It's a well-known emetic. You see, Holmes had to be sure the Duke of Buckinghurst would not be able to perform his part of the ceremony.
5: Oh, I see. And now, Dr. Watson, what's the theme of next week's story?
9: Next week, I'm going to take you back to Hurlstone, Mr.
5: Harris. Hurlstone? Wasn't that the ancient manor house that was the scene of the Musgrave ritual? Right.
9: Next week's story is a different one, however. It concerns a gruesome family ghost story... told by Reginald Musgrave's newly acquired wife... and how Mr. Plunkett, the pickle king... insisted on sleeping in the room where Charles I had slept... and how the ghost story was reenacted with more accuracy... Than anyone had believed possible.
5: The makers of Clippercraft clothes and 1,036 leading stores from coast to coast have brought you another in the new series of broadcasts featuring the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is produced and directed by Basil Akron, with special music by Albert Berman. If you don't know your Clippercraft dealer, write Clippercraft, 200 Fifth Avenue, New York City. Sure, to listen next week to Sherlock Holmes in the Case of the Sanguinary Spectre. If you'd like to attend the Sherlock Holmes broadcasts in New York, see your local Clippercraft dealer and he'll tell you how to obtain your tickets. <laughs> this is Cy Harris speaking for Clipper Craft Co. This is the world's largest network serving more than 450 radio stations for mutual broadcasting systems. Be sure to hear Melvin Elliott
7: reporting the latest headline news which follows in just a moment. Fly Eastern Airlines New Type Constellation with 300 million passenger miles of dependability. Fly Eastern Airlines. Remember, there's no finer way to travel.
0: That's going to do it for this week's Case Closed. If you want to find more from Philip Marlowe, Sherlock Holmes, past episodes of this show, and all the others, just visit the website relicradio.com find everything there including our shoutcast stream and our donate button if you would like to help support this and all of the shows give that button a click or visit donate.relicradio.com it's the only way we keep coming to you every week thank you as always to those who have helped out thanks for joining me today be back next wednesday with another episode of case closed